RehabCast, the official podcast of ACRM and the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, is sponsored in part by Shepherd Center. My name is Zach Bradley. I'm a current employee and former patient of Shepherd Center, which specializes in medical treatment, research, and rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injury, brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, spine and chronic pain, and other neuromuscular conditions. Our specialized clinicians serve as complex care partners. They collaborate with medical professionals who refer their patients to Shepherd Center to help them achieve optimal outcomes, returning them to their homes, communities, schools, and workplaces. Learn more at shepherd.org. Welcome to the 42nd episode of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. In this episode, we've got two more great interviews. First, we're talking with Dr. Lauren Davidson, professor of PM&R at UC Davis, about their work in telephysiatry for pediatric rehab, which actually began prior to the COVID pandemic, but is now, of course, even more relevant to our life and times. Then we'll be visiting with Dr. Hero Master about her work out of Vanderbilt on the incredible importance of ambulation after spine surgery to outcomes. Joining us now in the rehab cast, we have Dr. Lauren Davidson. Dr. Davidson is professor of PM&R at UC Davis and director of the residency program there and the Pediatric Rehab Fellowship. Dr. Davidson and his colleagues have published on patient experience and cost savings associated with a novel telephysiatry program for children living in rural and underserved communities. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Davidson. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, Well, let's uh, uh, get into it a a bit here. I understand you've been at UC Davis for a while there, um, and uh, has has your PM&R department always served rural and underserved communities? Well, we were constrained previously by the geographics of serving rural and underserved communities. So we served about eight different sites for the California Children's Services uh, Medical Therapy Program. So what that involves is a peds physiatrist going out into the community. Um, we see children in their own school where they receive their medical therapy. Um, mm. But the logistics of driving out um, was challenging. And so what we found is those that lived farther away from the academic center really were identified late and unfortunately uh, tended to have uh, delayed interventions, tone management, um, and hip preservation. And so our goal was to try to reach out into the rural communities and monitor, uh, shepherd these kids uh, through their development and physiatry needs at an earlier time point. Is it is it required that physiatrists be involved um, in overseeing these therapies at the at the elementary schools? You know that the needs are met by a number of different persons. Um, we uh, physiatrists are probably the most common specialty that would go, but um, mm-hmm. in some communities they don't have physiatrists, so a local pediatrician may may do so, uh, an orthopedic surgeon or less frequently a neurologist. Okay. Um, I think what we identified is that the most important was that whatever the team member that went there, whatever physician specialty, that they were integrated into a multidisciplinary team so that they could identify the child's needs and direct them appropriately in a timely way to get the services needed. 
How many how many pediatric rehab specialists in your department? We have four at the present time. Okay, that's pretty big, right? Um, it's still... yeah. I think um, we have, have the only pediatric rehab fellowship in the state of California, which for a large state um, it, it seems insufficient, but we're yeah. excited to have that. So I think you know somewhere between four and seven for an academic center is is probably common these days mm-hmm. for peds rehab docs. Mm-hmm. As far as the the program in California goes, providing therapies to children in elementary schools, about how how many how large is the clientele there? How many thousands of kids are we talking about? So in the state of California, it's roughly twenty three thousand children. Wow. Um, and so we. We started by mapping out, you know, where these children live, the population density of these counties, and then where the specialists lie. So where the peds physiatrists work, and not surprisingly, they live in the uh, and work in the urban academic centers. Yeah. So you could draw just a radius spoke and hub type model as to how far these patients had to travel and the likelihood that they would have their needs met. Hence the the impetus for the, yeah. the article. Yeah. I find it kind of fascinating that both your your study was interrupted by the pandemic, but also very much needed, uh, uh, pro- proven to be necessary because of the pandemic. That, that's both uh, interesting because you're <laughs> looking at a at a tele rehab model and everything, which is what all the papers are on now, thanks to the pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, the the COVID pandemic. If you had to find a silver lining, it it poured rocket fuel on our project. So in the beginning, we had eight sites. We asked for persons to elect to participate, having a hybrid model of in person and telemedicine in order to do a direct comparison. There was some reluctance, some resistance, with folks saying, "Well, we'd prefer to have the physician in person, but we wanted them to try it and make their own judgment." Mm-hmm. And we got four of eight initially to participate, mm-hmm. and then COVID hit, and the sites that had onboarded with telemedicine were the only ones that had no disruption in service and medical Mm -hmm. direction because we were able to pivot and do telemedicine during the pandemic. Ultimately, during COVID, we were able to expand from eight sites to 17 MTUs covering 11 counties. And now those sites that we cover, those that are very rural, will still actually retain. They'll keep the medical direction that we do by telemedicine. And those that are Mm -hmm. closer will be able to kind of titrate in-person versus telemedicine kind of as, you know, the needs arise and, and the physician is available to go out there. Now, am I reading this correctly? The design of this particular study, the the parents and kids are still going on site to the elementary school. It's the physiatrist who's remote. Not, not That's not correct. So that okay. this is our first paper. We'll have a next paper coming that we're going to do a comparison of what we call the COVID STARS model, okay. which looked at all three parties in a separate location. And it's absolutely fundamentally different because in our initial paper that you referenced, we had a quality physical exam done by the physical therapist. So we Mm -hmm. had met ahead of time, discussed an appropriate orthopedic exam and what we would need as a physician to make a good quality decision on medical management. And once COVID hit, we could not be in the same place. So it's also defined as telemedicine, but the family was at their home. The therapist was in their location and the physician in the medical center. And had the child and family try to demonstrate elements of the physical exam, but it's most certainly not the same. Um, And so our next paper will look at satisfaction and some quality measures of that purely virtual model. Because the term telemedicine is used widely, but is not always defined as to where the players are and whether or not you have an exam by proxy, we call it. So do you have a skilled clinician doing the physical exam? Are you really asking the patient to demonstrate their own physical exam, and it, it's very different. Yeah. 
of course, these these kids do need hands-on services, you know, at the, the school and so forth as well. One, one could imagine yet another model, too, where <laughs> uh, the physiatrist is back at the academic medical center, the therapist and child are there at school on the regular school day. The parent uh, is at work or at home, so uh, and uh, for their convenience. Um, uh, yes. And uh, so, uh, I mean, I guess depending on how how it pans out, ultimately that that's something that that could be explored as well. Is that something y'all have done before? So it's something that we are exploring. We haven't put it into practice. The other iteration of that would be teletherapy. Mm. For some of these rural communities, they don't have enough population density to really hire a full-time pediatric therapist. Uh, So some direction and guiding of the parent or teacher on what they can do for their child via Zoom or otherwise is better than not at all. And that's Mm -hmm. what, you know, many rural communities go without. So we've had plenty of interest as a result of this paper asking, well, do your therapists ever join in on the Zoom and provide therapy sessions? Uh, we would love to have that because at present, we really don't have any options. So it's not, it, it takes a different role depending on what your needs are in a community. But it, I think it definitely has great potential to bridge the gap. Well, to cut to the chase on on your results, you're, you're asking the parents to rate the experience, uh, as I gather, and uh, what they felt like kind of the, the overall quality of, of care was, how attentive the, the doctor is, and uh, knowledgeable of the history and those types of things, just the service generally. Um, and your your results were, I'll let you say. So they were quite happy. I mean, yeah. they were equally satisfied with in-person versus telemedicine. There was no statistical difference between the two groups. Mm-hmm. We're curious and have not crunched the numbers yet to see what the respective parties think of the COVID stars where they're all completely mm-hmm. separate. We actually did a focus group follow-up with directed questions to have more of a dialogue rather than just our uh, surveys. And they felt that they were heard. Uh, during telemedicine, and that their child did have a proper visit via the therapist providing a physical exam. They were able to observe the dialogue that the therapist and physician were having and felt that, you know, appropriate referrals were made for orthopedics or whatever would be necessary. So as a result of that, they indicated that they felt comfortable and were highly satisfied. Mm -hmm. When there was no physical exam, it remains to be seen if they feel the same way. Initial results suggest that they're very happy with the convenience of it all because they didn't sure. have to drive anywhere. They're, they're actually joining from their home. Mm-hmm. It may actually be the therapist and or physician that are less satisfied with the quality of care that they perceive that they're able to provide. Um, that would be my personal bias, but um, uh, we'll wait to see what others mm-hmm. think. So. And you also had the therapist weigh in what they felt like the quality of care was. Correct. So the therapist and family were pretty uniform in our paper that they were equally satisfied with in-person versus remote physiatrist. That was the only person that was remote in our study. Okay. Um, and one of the main cost savers, obviously, is the time of the doctor having to drive out to these remote clinics and so forth. But, uh, that, but that is something that y'all have been, been doing and, and still do uh, some as well, right? You go out on site. Correct. We um, we do drive out on site when possible. There's some counties that we, you know, in rural Northern California, maybe three to four hours one way, and those really are not possible. So you would lose a day of work really to get there. And these therapy units don't run on the weekends. So, you know, it, it's logistically our employer, the hourly rate we get, depending on where you are in your career, it may not cover your salary, actually. Yeah. And then to, to burn a day in transit to these facilities, it's uh, 
threatened service that we're able to provide in the state of California. So without some innovation like telemedicine, we worry that, you know, children with special health care needs may not get physiatry services or frankly, a medical direction that from orthopedists and otherwise, if we don't figure out other means to do it. Yeah. And this is a public model. This is like California Medicaid um, covering. Yes. So this is a carve out program from California Medicaid under the Department of Healthcare Services, but we refer to it as uh, California Children's Services. I see. And specifically their medical therapy program for, so it's for children with special healthcare needs. There's qualifying diagnoses, but the primary or most common diagnosis would be uh, cerebral palsy. Okay. What's your impression of how it's organized in California versus other states? I'm sure it runs the gamut with some states even more threadbare. I mean, I'm sure a lot more threadbare in some in some yeah. states, but is this a common setup? Even doctors, you know, traveling out to elementary schools and seeing folks in, in clinics there, or is this something fairly unique in California? Um, it, as you said, it varies quite a bit from state to yeah. state. My experience had been fellowship in Colorado. And they actually are quite similar. Um, They would travel out to remote sites, not only limited to Colorado, but surrounding states. Mm. Because of the Rocky Mountains, they actually had to fly to many of their sites, um, short hopper flights to see these kids. And then during the winter, it just it wasn't done because the weather didn't permit. And then other states surrounding us on the West, they don't have as organized a program at all. So there's really not an equivalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, program. The, the only option the families have is to drive into the academic medical center. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure there should be a lot of interest then in, in exactly the mechanics of how to pull it off telehealth-wise, uh, even for those that, that have nothing currently, because that's that's far more economically achievable for these various uh, state Medicaid programs that are charged with providing these services. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's it's an option, right? And, and that's what mm-hmm. we need is to look at, given the available options, what is your best tool? And I think for the rural and underserved communities, it really can bridge that gap. And thankfully, the data shows that people are satisfied and our quality measures and economic analysis are all favorable that this this is a viable option, telemedicine. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Davidson, thank you for your time today and explicating your your study beyond the pages of the, the journal. I think it's going to be helpful for our listeners and certainly encourage everyone to go read the, the paper. And we look forward to what comes next. Thank you, Dr. Box. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. So joining us now on the Rehab Cast, we have Dr. Hero Master. Dr. Master was a postdoc fellow in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Vanderbilt School of Medicine when she uh, did this uh, work uh, with her colleagues there and continues to participate in clinical trial uh, work. She is now Scientific uh, Research Manager uh, at All of Us. Uh, Dr. Master, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Fox. I'm really excited that this paper got featured uh, as like a paper and everyone is interested in knowing the findings. So I'm really, really excited to talk about it. And before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to my postdoc mentor, Kristen Archer, all the surgeons, research coordinators, and my colleagues who are part of this big trial. So I want to give a big shout out to them. Very good. All right. Well, and it definitely takes a team to pull off something like this. The paper is uh, how many steps per day during the early post-op period are associated with patient-reported outcomes 
of disability, pain, and opioid use after lumbar spine surgery. So it's yourself and certainly it looks like other research colleagues and some of the surgeons in the orthopedics department and so forth. And y'all are specifically looking at lumbar laminectomy procedures, uh, certainly a patient population that has been universally experiencing chronic pain and probably being exposed to opioid pain medications. And the great goal and hope of, of an intervention like this would be to change that disability course, have them not as disabled in the future or becoming degenerative more progressed and hopefully not using opioid pain medications. So anything that can be done to, to move the needle on that would be of great benefit. I guess to start at the very beginning, this is part of a larger trial, as I understand it. Can you tell us what the larger trial w- was doing or is doing? Yes. So this is a secondary data analysis of a randomized controlled trial where two major academic medical centers, that is Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Johns Hopkins Hmm. University, where we recruited participants from both these academic medical centers. And the main purpose of the trial was to investigate the effectiveness of cognitive behavior physical therapy after lumbar spine surgery. So that was the main purpose of the trial. And the trial had a followed-up participants for up to two years and recruited over 248 participants who underwent uh, lumbar spine surgery. Well, I suppose I'm familiar with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. What's cognitive behavioral physical therapy? So, yes, uh, cognitive behavior physical therapy. So, it was this intervention was delivered by a licensed physical therapist. Mm-hmm. And the physical therapist was trained by a psychologist and our study PI, that is Christian Archer. So they trained her and it consists of various components like deep breathing techniques, relaxation, uh, goal setting, graded activity plan. So it is a comprehensive cognitive behavior physical therapy, which was delivered by licensed physical therapists who had trained by a psychologist. Okay. Fascinating. And so uh, out of that, obviously, you're able to look at many other different trends in this patient population. And certainly a very salient one would be how much they're walking and what the correlation is uh, there with with ultimate outcomes. The outcomes you guys pick, the Oswestry uh, Disability Index and uh, Lower Extremity Pain. Tell us about the Oswestry Disability Index in the the first place and why that's going to be a useful outcome measure. Yes. So in this study, uh, like specifically in this study, we used the Oswestry Disability Index, that is ODI, and pain as a composite score. Mm-hmm. So we're not just like improvement in disability, but rather because previous colleagues like Crawford et al., like they found like a composite measure is more representative of a minimal symptom stage. Or if someone, if a patient scores less than 20 on ODI and has back and leg pain scores less than equal to two, then they are more likely to be satisfied and less likely to seek medical care. So we were like, instead of looking at it as an individual outcomes, like disability and pain, because we were thinking of like thinking of it from a composite perspective. Mm-hmm. So to see that not only did they have lower disability, but they also had lower pain scores. I see. Okay. The main, you know, intervention is uh, is walking. Now, is this retrospectively looking at how much walking folks happen to do, or are they being actively encouraged to start walking early postoperatively, and, and how much, and how early? Yes. So this study is more like an observational study. So okay. patients were not given like a pedometer or like step goals. Rather, mm-hmm. patients were randomized to either cognitive behavior, physical therapy, 
or education group. So the main focus was, you know, deep breathing exercise, relaxation, graded activity plan. Like patients were encouraged to walk, but we did not specifically track their walking. Mm. Walking was measured using a research grade monitor that is Actigraph G3X. So we monitored walking at various time points. That is six weeks after spine surgery. Then we measured it at six months, 12 months, and at 24 months after spine surgery. Since we had this rich accelerometer data, we were like, mm-hmm. how about we see if walking, which was quantified as steps per day using this Actigraph GT3X at six weeks, mm-hmm. wasn't associated with any outcomes at one year. Since we found this signal, we think that a next step should be like doing an intervention research where we are trying to encourage participants, patients to engage in walking. And our team has already started this walking intervention trial, which we call it as PASS because it's physical activity after spine surgery. Mm-hmm. We are giving patients or participants like a Fitbit and we are giving them a walking intervention, which is delivered again by a licensed physical therapist. And it's delivered virtually. Given pandemic, we made everything virtually. And the goals over there is based on real-time walking. Like we basically track, like since we give them Fitbit, we have their real-time data. Mm-hmm. And you real-time data, our licensed physical therapist then makes step goals for them. And the approach or behavioral model that we have used is brief action planning model. Mm-hmm. So we use this brief action planning model to train our physical therapist who's going to deliver this walking intervention. So we're really excited to, uh, like we just finished six month follow-up with this trial and we are now in a phase of analyzing our data and hopefully we should publish it soon, like by next year or something. Fascinating. Well, so you mentioned that in the earlier phase, you were using this kind of research grade actigraphy monitor, this G3X, and now it's the Fitbit. Is the technology, the consumer devices now such that it's it's equivalently as good? And uh, like, what's the trade-off there out of curiosity? So, so sorry for the confusion. So mm-hmm. still using Actigraph G3X because it's a research-grade monitor. Yes. However, any biofeedback to patients. So in order to give intervention, in order that patients can see their step goals, we are giving Fitbit. However, we are still using Actigraph G3X to measure their behavior. That is steps per day, and time spent in moderate to vigorous physical activity, sedentary behavior. I see. And various time points. But, and one thing is like with Actigraph GD3X, we are only doing like a seven-day monitoring period. We are not mm-hmm. doing an extended monitoring period. So when you're using two devices, commercial device that is Fitbit is used to deliver the intervention so patients can use it and see how they are increasing and whether mm-hmm. we tailor their goals or take it back or, you know, we can make right. like a real-time judgment rather than, of focusing more on patient-reported, self-reported activity, we are making like a real time, okay, I see that you're walking, let's say 3,000 steps. That's encouraging. Like, how about now, can you walk like 3,200 steps next week? So something like that. It's like more objective evidence to counsel patients and even patients feel like an active part of making the decision rather than it's just been coming directly from therapists. We believe that if patients are actively involved in this mm-hmm. making or goal setting, it's more like a mutual decision and patients feel more empowered and they will feel, okay, now I have to do it. At least that's what experiences we have seen with our patients or participants. Very good. Okay. And and it looks like uh, speaking of the 3000 steps and so forth, 3,500 is what y'all found to be the most significant 
in this paper. In the first place, how does 3,500 steps a day compare to like normal U.S. population, uh, you know, active population and so forth? We can say like 3,500 steps. Again, like we have just looked at it from a volume perspective. We have not from an intensity perspective. So we looked at it from the state cadence. However, over a period of day, if patients or participants have like 3,500 steps, then it is an indicator of having good health outcomes over the long Mm -hmm. And this is also during just early postoperative period. And if they're doing more, more is definitely better. The approach that we use was we use this, uh, we calculated the sensitivity, specificity, accuracy. We tested different thresholds. So starting from 1,500, 2,000, went in the increment of 500 steps per day. And then we were looking which steps per day threshold balanced the sensitivity and specificity and had relatively higher accuracy value. We found out that 3,000 steps was kind of like a sweet spot. And how it relates to the literature is there was a previous work in knee osteoarthritis, which was been led by White et al. What they found is like 3,000 steps per day, maybe a minimum number of steps that is needed to prevent developing future functional limitation. How to acknowledge that there have been like a lot of higher steps per day recommendation, like 6,500 to 8,500 steps per day, which has been given to patients with COPD, diabetes. And we do believe that further work is needed once patient is in middle to late recovery period after spine surgery, if higher steps per day is needed. We did not, uh, so that's something future work is definitely needed over there. And I would also like to bring like one caveat, our accuracy, like our A- AUC value, area under the curve value was not like super high, but it was like relatively low to moderate values. So we definitely want to highlight a caution over there. But mm-hmm. what is like this 3,500 steps per day may serve as an initial recommendation. So let's say if a surgeon is seeing a patient, it is like a safe recommendation. If a patient asks, how much should I walk, doc? Like, what should I do? Like, I've seen a lot of people saying 10,000 steps, which may not be realistic for this patient population. Sure. So in that case, uh, maybe like a healthcare professional saying that probably start off with achieving at least 3,500 steps per day and see how it goes. And again, tailor it to your body needs. It's not like we want to say that this is like the perfect recipe or perfect threshold. No way we are trying to say that. It's just an initial some way, like a ballpark that we want our patients to at least achieve 3,500 steps per day. But more is better. Oh, yeah. I mean, whatever the, the key threshold, as low as it can be, is great. Kind of, you know, an uh, almost errorless learning approach to physical therapy or whatever. You keep it as simple as possible to start out with. And once that threshold is reached, y'all did find, you know, quite impressively decreased odds of, of needing long-term or continuing to need opioids, having higher pain scores in the lower extremities over two and uh, and the disability uh, scale being significantly impacted as well, right? Yes. So if, if you're taking 5,000 steps, perfect, great. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose one one natural caveat is the the chicken and the egg problem about well is it the folks who are who are doing better feeling better or going to be more inclined to walk more in the in the first place um, hard to uh, absolutely I suppose disentangle uh, cause and effect there absolutely and as I mentioned this is an observational study mm-hmm. no way we can say that if someone is walking this many steps per day it is definitely going to lead it's just like an association and that's why. And intervention research is definitely a next good follow-up step to test this assumption that we have found, like a key finding that we have found, like if we encourage our patients, is it going to help them? 
And one important thing that I would really want to highlight is a lot of previous literature in spine surgery has highlighted that patients after spine surgery, they get like the functional benefit. However, their physical activity is low, like they are still physically inactive. So which we believe if someone is physically inactive, based on the literature, we believe that it would lead to long-term poor health outcomes, even like mortality risk. Yeah. And there's yeah, uh, obviously a huge cognitive component there, hence the other forms of psychological engagement for physical therapists and, and so forth that you're, you're engaging in. Well, you mentioned that this research continues to move on and now in a more uh, prospective type of design. Also, do want to ask you about your new role as the scientific research manager at All of Us. I spent a minute clicking around the website and so forth. It looks like an interesting organization. And tell us about that and, and what All, All of Us uh, does. Yeah, sure. So I am a scientific project manager for All of Us program. So Vanderbilt University Medical Center is uh, like as a main leading efforts in data and research center. Mm-hmm. So I'm still associated with Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And at All of Us Research Program, I have opportunity to basically lead initiatives like outreach initiatives and initiatives around digital health technology. Because in All of Us, it's like one of the biggest effort, at least the best of my knowledge in the United States, where they want to recruit at least 1 million patients, sorry, participants who are underrepresented in biomedical research. So they're trying to recruit like those uh, socioeconomically waste uh Education-wise, those who are underrepresented in the research, they're trying to focus recruitment around that patient population. And they have recruited more than 420,000 participants. And they're doing like a lot of data collection. So they're doing like surveys, genomics data, EHR data. Then there's digital health data, which is definitely of a key interest to me. So they are collecting data using Fitbits, Apple Health device. So I feel that it's a very amazing opportunity for any researcher or even a PhD student who wants to do a dissertation. And given pandemic, like I understand like the participant recruitment is like quite a challenge. And this rich, diverse data set is available to all starting May 2020. So it's an amazing resource. And I am making small contribution by leading initiatives around the outreach and digital health data, basically making sure how we can deliver which data set in a meaningful way to researchers, how the researchers can use this data set in a meaningful way to answer clinically relevant questions and make amazing discoveries and take a small step towards precision medicine. Fascinating. And so I see it. it's a .org, uh, so it is a nonprofit type of organization itself? Yes. Okay. So NIH is funded. So it's NIH funded, and there are like a lot of uh, key stakeholders. So there's a data and research center, there's participant technology, there are like tons of stakeholders. And I am just like a very small part of data and research center at Vanderbilt University. Like, so Vanderbilt University Medical Center, so Victor within Vanderbilt University Medical Center, they basically have taken an initiative by launching a platform that is a Google Cloud platform called Researcher Workbench. So researchers can use this data on a secure environment. And they're working with Verily and other stakeholders, Broad Institute, to make sure that this platform is secure and it's functional and it can handle this tons of data. The data is in like a lot of like gigabytes, terabytes, like Mm -hmm. and then researchers can use this data set on the platform. Fascinating. Well, it definitely sounds like next generation of, uh, of research out there, you know, kind of solves one of the biggest problems, I suppose, with research first, which is recruitment. Uh, so you have, 
the patient population uh, there engaged, uh, hopefully, and as the projects come along. As you upload your information, kind of agree to participate generally, are there secondary agreements that are coming to people where they then have to consent to participate in each individual trial, or how, how does that work? So basically, it's on a volunteer basis, and they have also uh-huh. with healthcare providers. So uh, this is like participants agree to be part of this program, and there's a consent process. And then if they decide to share their EHR data, Fitbit data, we get this data. And once we get the data, it's basically the data is received at Data and Research Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And then basically it goes under intense curation process, make sure that it's QC'd, like quality check, it's harmonized. And a lot of privacy rules are applied to make sure that there's no stigmatization research going on. Because in the past, uh, especially we want to be very careful that we are sharing data, not only widely, but wisely. So we hmm. want to make sure that this data is protected and participants' privacy is protected. So the data access is in different tiers. So there's a public level access, then there's a registered tier access, then there's a control tier access. So in public tier access is like any researchers, participants who want to see how their data is being used in terms of hmm. like publications, research projects, or like just in terms of counts. So there's a public website called Research Hub. And then anyone can see that data. So if anyone goes to researchallofus.org, anyone can browse their data browser or can browse the research project tree, research project directory, then publications. And I think uh, they also started Hope Survey in then response to COVID pandemic. And they have mm-hmm. seen around 99,000 participants have responded to Hope Survey. So again, a very rich data set. And we have like Fitbit data, we have survey data, EHR data, COPE survey data. So a lot of like interesting questions that can be answered using this amazing rich data set. And then second is the registered tier is like where researchers have to undergo the training. Again, the registration process is free. Like there's no payment to register on the portal. It's free, but you have to sign like an agreement, make sure that Mm. you're not going to do any stigmatization research. You're going to not like try to re-identify the data or something like that, you know, any kind of thing. So those are some rules and regulations that uh, the researchers undergo. And then once the agreement and everything is in place, then researchers get access to row-level data and they can play around with the data. It's like amazing with source of data. Fascinating. And where control tier is like, you get like a biospecimens data. So they're just going to launch the control tier data where you have data on genomics, biospecimens. So that is like another rich source. I, to the best of my information in the United States, I don't know any data set that has all the components that you can play around and you can do this amazing discovery and like, answer so many questions and it's all yeah. so it's like it's an amazing initiative i'm really excited that i got to be part of this initiative yeah uh and to the research question even that you're asking here i mean obviously that that type of data could be could be useful there as well given a large enough patient population large enough number of folks who are involved spine surgery is relatively common and you've got the Fitbit data in there and, and that type of thing. It would be interesting to see some of the trends and, and the amount of steps per day in different patient populations before or after surgeries and that type of thing. Fascinating. Well, great. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Master, thanks for uh, sharing this paper with us today. Thanks for publishing in, in the archives. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Like Our team is so excited that when the paper got published at archives because we really wanted to 
reach out to rehab professionals, physiatrists, and tell them because they patients on a regular basis. And I get so many questions from physical therapists. Well, our patients are using Fitbit. So how much should I tell them? Like, what should I tell them? So I really mm-hmm. hope that this paper at least gives like a starting point to start experimenting and start giving like more evidence-based thresholds to patients and counsel them on how they can be physically active. I definitely think it, it fits the bill there. Well, well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for our 42nd episode of RehabCast. Please share the podcast with colleagues and be sure to check in next month for round 43.